So we have a new memo in from our latest patron overlord. Yeah, it's more direct than usual. Our patrons come conspirators. <sighs> don't snigger. It's a decent bit of philosophical terminology there. Our patrons come conspirators are usually more circumspect about getting in touch with us. Well, that's because our latest member of the Grand Conspiracy is none other than... Drew. I thought he was already a patron. Uh, he just thought he was because he bought me a lot of beer. As he should, as all people should. Well, precisely. I have a thirst which needs serving, if you know what I mean. I choose not to know what you mean. But enough about that. What does Drew want? Well, he wants more sports-based conspiracy theories and less derogatory talk about sports in general. Okay. He wants a weekly update on Alex Jones, more dog-based content, less 90s grunge references. Hold on, you, you put that one in. Maybe. Anyway, he also wants episodes out on time and a special Drew's View segment each fortnight where he can have a little rant on whatever pissed him off in the last 15 minutes. That's uh, quite the list. I have to ask, has he met... The Threshold? Ah, yes. The Threshold. No, only three of our patrons have ever met The Threshold, and one of them even wishes we do not associate their name with The Threshold. Well, unless Drew hits The Threshold, he can get one and only one of his demands. Then we are agreed? We are. Good, no more 90s grunge references. Yeah, well, hang on, wait a minute. Josh, might I remind you that you have also not reached the threshold? Well, yeah, but I mean... Yeah, you got me. Good. So whilst Josh goes and throws out all of his flannel shirts, let's get this party started. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, New Zealand, and with us in Zhuhai, China, it's Associate Professor of Philosophy and notorious three-toed ungulate, Dr. M. Rx Dentith. I thought we weren't going to talk about my feet. There's a wiki for feet content, and we don't want to be adding hmm. any data to it. I, I just thought we'd, we'd amuse our audience with a bit of foot stuff. Everybody likes a bit of foot stuff, don't they? It's true. It's part of the thirst that needs serving. Mm. So, patrons, as far as the eye can see, that's always nice. Yes, although I do want to point out the Podbean commenting system doesn't really work, in that there, are, there, is, there is a comment system on Podbean. But the problem with the comment system on Podbean is that we can really only access the comments if we download the Podbean app. Because you can see the comments on the website, but you can't do anything with the comments on the website. Now, I've been in contact with Podbean.com and said, can we at least manage content on the website? And they go, no, we want you to use the app. And the problem is, Josh and I do not want to download an additional app just deal with comments on the podcast. And we can't turn the comments off. There's no way to turn the comments off. It's a useless system. Podbean knows about it, but they're trying to drive traffic to an app that nobody wants to use. We really should look at changing our hosts, I suppose. It's been, been c coming close to eight years 
on the same thing. There must be newer and better solutions out there. But anyway, that's yeah, a I think I think time. when we so we're we're kind of locked in for the next year. But maybe next year, maybe next year mm. we should we should look at finding ourselves a new host, a better host, mm. a host which doesn't even allow commenting on podcasts. I see we we did get uh, a couple of comments on the good old Uncle Sam's uh, snuff factory. Thing. Yes, I both a... on your YouTube page and on mm. my YouTube page. So there you go. Nice bit of anti-Semitism to ruin the day. Mm. Um, so have we anything else, or do we do we forge ahead? Well, I mean, you forge do ahead. I, forge I get ahead. to yes. sit back and write because this is a what the conspiracy episode, mm. and I am the victim, and Josh is the conspirator. I was about to say conspiracy master, but I mean, that's, that term is just... You're, you're the grand conspirator. Sure, I'll take that. Good. Play me a... Play me a... Play me a tune? T- t- tone? Chime? Sting! Play me a sting, uh, and, and I'll see what I can cook up for you. Insert sting reference here. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. What's his name? Gordon Sumner. Doesn't matter. So, I have. Do, do I have a conspiracy theory for you? No. I have three conspiracy theories for well, you. Well, hold on, hold on. No, um, I mean, surely you should, we should be doing the three questions. Well, first no, no, no. This is leading into that. all three of them. Well, that's that's just it. So, I sort of. I have three conspiracy theories which didn't seem to be enough for an episode on their own, but all, all go together with a common theme. So, when it comes to you guessing the where, the when, and the what, the what is basically the same for all three of them, but there's a bit of variation in the when, in the where's, and the when. So it's up to you whether you want to try and guess all three, or, or just sort of make make a guess and and know that you have three times the chance of it being right. Up up to you. I mean, I could I could I could try the cheat and go with the where being the planet Earth, assuming you're dealing with Earth-based conspiracy theories, at which point I have to kind of get the point. But no, I'm going to go for all three, although I'll, okay. I'll, I'll only go for one what. I'll go for three times, three places, one what. So yep. ask me ask me the questions three, if you please. Right, so wh- which three places do you think this conspiracy occur- these conspiracies occurred in? All right, the Gold Coast of Australia. Right, eh? The Gold Coast of the United States, so California, mm-hmm. San, ben- San Bern- Bernardino and the like, and mm-hmm. Portugal. Right, I should, start, I should keep notes about, about your scoring here so I can give you a proper one. Okay, right, that's the win. So the win, give me, give me three possible times when these conspiracy theories could have occurred. 1816, mm-hmm. 1932, and 34 mm-hmm. BC. Right, right, okay. Uh, and finally, what do you think all three of these conspiracy theories are about? Mercury poisoning. Right. Well, out of a possible seven points, I've chosen to give you one and a half. Ooh! Uh, California. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think California was, in, certainly the US uh, is one of them. And wh- wh- where, when in the 30s, did you say? 1932. 1932. I mean, that's, it's kind of in between two of them. So on average... You're a, you're a little bit on the money there. I will take a um, little bit on the money. 
Yeah. Uh, so, no, what I want to talk to you today about is Soviet spies. And people who may or may not have been them. So, um, who who do we know who might have been a KGB spy? I mean, do you mean... Who do we know personally? I mean, I've always been a bit suspicious about Nick, especially when he had that beard. It was a very, mm. very rusky beard. Quite a Russian beard. No, no. <clears throat> larger, slightly larger figures than our good friend Nick, who, despite being a, a, a titan among us, hasn't had that much of an effect on oh, global no, no, politics. Josh, 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 Josh. I will, I will, I will remind you. One of the urtics of this podcast is Nick on September eleventh, two thousand and one, New Zealand Standard Time, complaining that nothing interesting ever happens on his birthday. And what happened the next morning, September twelfth, September eleventh, U.S. Standard Time? Not there is a U.S. U.S. Standard Time, but whatever the Standard Time in New York is, something like nine eleven occurred. So don't say that Nick has not had an effect on world politics. Nick might be responsible for the political situation we find ourselves in today. Okay. Well, I'm still not talking about him anyway. I want to talk about British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Harold Wilson. Sorry, we just we haven't been using the surprise button enough recently, no, so yes, probably going we to go should, we should get our money's worth out of it. Yep, no, fair enough. Uh, so Harold Wilson um, became the leader of the Labour Party, the British Labour Party, in 1963. When Labour won the election in 1964, he therefore became Prime Minister. Or was PM from 64 to 1970, and then again from 1974 to 1976. Uh, now, as the leader of the Labour Party in the 70s, as you can probably imagine, he was a, he was a big old lefty. Um, lots of, lots of left-wing policies instituted uh, under his rule, uh, which also meant he was possibly not too popular with the intelligence agencies. We've seen a bit of that in, in recent other episodes, I mean, lefty politicians. Famously, MI5 doesn't really like mm. anyone who isn't right-wing. As it turns out, yeah. a lot of intelligence agencies don't like, which is, a, I think, one of the classic issues that the Republicans had under President Trump is that normally, actually I say normally, post the 1970s, the US intelligence apparatus has been largely right-wing or at least right-wing adjacent, and so it's been more sympathetic towards Republican presidents than towards Democratic ones. I mean, given that, you know, people like George H.W. Bush were, you know, running elements of the security state before mm. his political career. And then you get someone like Trump and you're going, oh, we really would normally support a person like Trump, but I think he's actually doing some really bad stuff. But anyway, let's go, let's go back to the you UK know. because MI5, the CIA and the FBI, they may have had their liberal periods in the middle of the 20th century. No one ever talks about there being a liberal period in British intelligence. No, and this will be no exception. So there, there had been rumours that Harold Wilson was in fact a spy for the KGB. Um, in the 1940s, he was president of the Board of Trade. He'd been on trade missions to Russia. Uh, he was apparently buddies with... Um, Anastas Mikoyan is apparently a, the only Soviet politician to last through sort of numerous um, 
eras of, of purges and restructurings and all that. Um, and also Vyacheslav Molotov, the guy that Molotov cocktails are named after, who from, from what I gather was not like, that wasn't a compliment. They called him not Molotov, they called the Molotov cocktails because they were throwing them at him, not that... Um, he was behind them. Uh, yeah, but anyway, right, so well, he was in his bedroom one day, you know, making pro- impromptu bombs, yes. going, hmm, vodka, rag, vodka rag. Well, it was a case of, no, uh, we're throwing our vodka rags at you. Yes. Yes, no, there's a whole big long story behind the origin of that term. But anyway, in 1963, a KGB defector called Anatoly Golitsyn had claimed that Wilson was a KGB informer and a and a quote agent of influence. So someone who was sort of had been who who had been put there in order to drive a country in a certain direction. Um, fun fact: Do you remember the very first the very first Mission Impossible movie, the first Tom Cruise one? And it was all the, about the, the one that really, really annoyed the fan base when they made the hero of the original the, hero, the villain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it was all about the knock list. The oh, yeah. I forget what yeah. knock even stood for. The list of agents. Yeah. So at the beginning, the rogue IMF agent who'd stolen the knock list, who they were after at the start, was named Alexander Galitzin, specifically as a reference to Anatoly Galitzin, the KGB defector. Did you know that they actually asked the original actor who played Jim Phelps to mm. reprise his role in the first Mission Impossible film, but he didn't want to play a villain? Yeah, no, he told them to bugger off. He's like, you're doing what to my character? Well, I, anyway. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not that actor, and that actor is now dead, so I'm quite glad I'm not that actor. But I kind of would have relished doing the, oh, role reversal, this sounds great. Mm, but no. So, the, 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 so, first of all, he claimed that um, Wilson was a, a KGB spy or was, was passing information on to the KGB. Um, but he went even further than that. Now... I said Wilson became the leader of the Labour Party in 1963. His predecessor, a man called Hugh Gatskill, died suddenly, and that was that was how that was when Wilson became the leader of the Labour Party. Um, and so Glitzen claimed that Gaskell's death was an assassination, essentially had been orchestrated specifically so that that their man Wilson would be thrust into the leadership role where they wanted him to be. So, Josh, could you say <clears> that in a slightly more portentous way, so I can put the surprise sound in? Okay. They claimed that Gatskill's death was no death, it was an assassination. Now can you say it in a seductive way? I already talked about him being thrust into power. How much more, how much, I don't think you get much more raunchy or we might all steam things up a little bit in here. I'll, my gla- I'll need to, I'll fuck up my glasses. Um, but yes, so <clears throat> officially... I'm just saying, officially, but it serves, it Gatskill, needs serving. Uh, Hugh Gatskill, shortly before he died, he died in January of 1963. In December of 1962, um, he had had a flu prior to travelling to Russia to talk to good old Khrushchev. So he'd he'd been unwell, but he'd been declared well enough to travel, went over to Russia, came back to England, died a month later, officially due to a sudden flare-up of lupus. So I think two things about that should make you suspicious, going to Russia and then coming home and dying, and then the fact that it was lupus, when, as we all know... It's, it's never, never lupus. lupus. Never, no. What would Dr. House say? But, um, well, so, I yeah, mean, the, actually, the Dr. House should say nothing, because he should be sued for malpractice. Well, yes, he was a horrible, horrible 
person and a bad doctor. So, I mean, I guess the question here now, in the case of Harold Wilson, does, do, do, does this hold water? And the answer is no, not really. There is no evidence apart from the word of Anatoly Golitsyn um, that Harold Wilson was ever a KGB spy. Now, the MI5 uh, investigated Golitsyn's claims, and they largely concluded that, you know, there's nothing to them. We've, we've got no evidence that he's a KGB agent. But, as we say, MI5 right-leaning didn't like their left-wing politicians, so there was apparently still a faction within MI5 who believed, well, okay, we couldn't turn anything up in the, in the investigation, but we still, we still reckon he's a commie. To the extent that there were then there are now a bunch of other conspiracy theories around Harold Wilson and the plots against him. Supposedly, a bunch of business leaders went to to Lord Mountbatten in the 1960s to try and um, uh, get him kicked out of office. Uh, there was talk of a military coup in 1974, um, and then supposedly also in 1974. MI5 was was manoeuvring against him. And I believe some of this um, was actually dra dra dramatised in The Crown, a show I've never watched. Was that, I haven't seen The Crown at all. Is that true? Or are you just adding yeah. a bit of flavour? No, no, there is... Yeah, there is... No, no, no. There, the, I believe that because they actually... Because they, they, there was intrigue in the royal family about whether they were going to support... Mm a plot against Harold Wilson at the time. I, I do know a little bit about this particular claim of communist complicity. And so there is, there, there was, I mean, if you're going to have a coup in the Westminster system, you kind of need the Queen to be behind it because she still has to, you know, open Parliament and the like. So there were, there were entreaties to the palace to see, you know, if we had a coup... Would members of the royal family be willing to endorse it? And that was one of the reasons why it kind of got shut down, according to the official mm. narrative, and that the Queen wasn't particularly keen to be seen to be interfering with parliamentary politics in that way, which is kind of shades of the Governor-General crisis in Australia, but we've talked about that previously. We have. Yes, so those were these two supposed coup attempts, but there was um, MI5 taking it upon themselves to try and... Uh, get rid of him. Do you remember the, the book Spycatcher? I do indeed. My um, parents had a copy of the, that. I'd never read it. No, it's 1987. It was the, the sort of the memoirs of Peter Wright, who was a former assistant director of MI5, co-written with Paul Greengrass, who's probably best known to us these days as the director of the Jason Bourne films, but an author... Um, in his own right. Um, so in Spycatcher, Peter Wright claimed that 30 MI5 agents uh, collaborated on this attempt to undermine Howard Wilson. Um, supposedly the plan was that MI5 was going to leak um, information about Wilson and other MPs to sympathetic journalists, um, and sort of encouraging the idea that Wilson was a security risk to try and uh, nobble his chances in the 1974 election. Later... Peter Wright retracted this claim, saying there was only one person working on these um, working on this. That's a significant sure. downgrade in personnel. That that really is, and then but this was also part of there was apparently a plot at the time called Clockwork Orange after the book, which was MI5 plotting against various left wing politicians trying to um, 
sort of circulate damaging information about them. But uh, we get uh, so so this is this is this the story of Harold Wilson is not not short on conspiracy theories. But um, perhaps I'm getting a little bit far away from the the topic that I've chosen for this episode, which is people who may or may not have been KGB spies. Indeed. So I mean, yeah, there, there doesn't appear to be any good evidence that British PM Harold Wilson was a KGB spy. So shall we move along? We shall. To person number two, who may or may not have been a KGB spy. Another one you might have heard of, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway? Fair. Now, correct me if I'm acclaimed. wrong, but he, was, he wasn't a politician. He was an acclaimed American novelist. Acclaimed American novelist is right, yes. In fact, I believe I've even read some Hemingway in my time. I'm not sure that I have, but I know the names of some Hemingway books. All right, name me Uh, three Hemingway books. He did A Farewell to Arms, he did The Old Man in the Sea, he did... I was looking at a list of his books, like, literally this afternoon when I was brushing up on my notes. Um, He did some other ones. So I read The Old Man in the Sea in fifth form. And the thing I remember most about it was our teacher going on and on and on about the famous story that Hemingway spent two months trying to write the first line of The Old Man in the Sea. Mm. I think the first line is about five words. It's a lot of time, Mm. five words. Mm. Well, in 2009... There was a book called yeah, sorry, Spies. Right, right, hold on. Hemingway was dead in 2009. I know that much. He was dead I mean, in 2009, If, if he yes. was a communist spy in 2009, hats off to you, sir. Hats off. Mm. No, no he, he committed suicide in the 1960s, and apparently leading up to his death, he had been talking about how, who was president then, Roosevelt, one of them, uh, was, was spying on him and tapping his phone lines and something. He was very paranoid about that, and possibly not without cause. Because, yes, uh, so 2009 there was a book. Uh, the book is called Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. And one of the things this book says is that uh, Ernest Hemingway was one of the KGB's agents in America. He had the code name Agent Argo. And so this is based on notes by one of the book's authors called Alexander Vasiliev. Um, he is a former KGB officer who in the 90s was given access to um, Stalin-era intelligence archives in Moscow. So according to the book, Hemingway basically approached the Soviets in the early 1940s, quite eager to help them. He had sort of, he had covered the Spanish Civil War, he had spent a bunch of time in Cuba and in China, um, and his experiences seemed to have made him fairly pro-communist. And he, he, he is known for another situation, sort of being very much wanting to, 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 to help out any way, and can, any way he could and sort of throw himself... Um, into the mix, he supposedly w- went uh, patrolling for submarines around Cuba or something during World War Two. So it's not unthinkable that he could have decided these communists um, are decent fellows who I should be helping out um, and going to them. And so apparently they took him at his word, but basically never anything, nothing ever really came from it. Uh, supposedly these notes about him said that he he basically never never was was never able to give the KGB anything, any interesting information. And so by the end of the 1940s, they just kind of stopped talking to him. I and, bet. Uh, I bet just kept going on. Look, I've, I've, I've got some intel, but I need to help you. I need, need you to help me break a story. Probably just spent hours and hours and hours describing plot developments in his most recent novel. And his handle was going, 
I mean, the intelligence just isn't worth the time I'm spending on this, Ernest. I mean, really. Please just go away. Just, just go away, Ernest. Go away. I don't want to hear about your whale, Ernest. Mm. So, yeah, so Hemingway, uh, from what I can tell, like this evidence, the evidence uh, put forward in this book is more compelling um, than than in the case of Harold Wilson, where it was just sort of one guy's word and nobody could back it up. This does seem to um, be be a lot more plausible. So you might be able to put a tick in there was a KGB agent next to Ernest Hemingway. But that's really all there is to say about it in this case. So I'll move on to my to my third and final case of potential Soviet agents. Well, I think Do you're you know hovering have... over the button for this. Yeah. Do you know someone else who might have been an undercover Soviet agent? Was it Joseph Stalin? Are we talking about the Joseph Stalin or another we Joseph are Stalin? About, we are talking about the Joseph Stalin. So Joseph Stalin might have been an undercover agent for the government that he was leading. Or are we talking about pre-in-control of the USSR, Joseph Stalin? Yes, yes we are. So um, in the early 1900s and probably a long time before that, I'm not sure, the the Russian Empire under the Tsar had a secret police called the Okhrana, and there were allegations that from 1906 until 1912, Stalin was an Okhrana mole in the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, um, which I uh, would be the you know the, the Workers' Party in Russia at the time pre communism, I suppose. Um, and so, so supposedly he was he uh, was a mole um, feeding information about what the uh, Social Democratic Labour Party was up to back to the Tsar's secret um, secret police. And so, and then, then the story goes that he basically s- sort of went rogue. I mean, I'd say he went very rogue. Went rogue in quite a big way, and um, I mean, actually, ended no, up. He's he's going rogue in a movie hero way. You know, the, mm. the character who suddenly realizes the government he's working for has been evil the entire time and brings down the system. I mean, this is. This is narrative gold. Someone should be writing a hero story for Joseph Stalin. He should become the next mm. the next major figure in phase five of the MCU. Well, who can say? Yeah, so supposedly once he was elected to the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party, he basically completely stopped cooperating with the Okhrana, stopped, stopped being a mole for them and started actually just being um, the, the, the leftist leader he was possibly pretending to be. Or at least was wow. Was yeah, I mean, therein lies the difficulty about talking time. about Stalin and his approach to the Cultural Revolution. Mm, mm. So this claim that Stalin was actually was a mole, was a, a traitor to the cause in his early years, uh, has apparently been made a few times. But there's only one bit of documentation that directly supports it, the, the so-called Eremin letter. Is this a letter by someone by the name of Eremin? Yes, it is. Anyway, he, uh, yes, uh, one, one Colonel Alexander Eremin 
who was head of the special section of the Tsarist Department of Police, which I assume is another name for the Okhrana. I sort of read these things in two slightly different places. Um, but so th this is a letter from Colonel Eriman to a captain in the town of Yeniseisk in Siberia, uh, basically letting him know that um, a bunch of revolutionaries had just been deported to his jurisdiction and letting him know that one of these revolutionaries who's been reported there is actually a, a, a former police collaborator, so just look out for him. And the name of this this police agent is Yosef Vissarionovich Jugashvili, which is the original name of Joseph Stalin. He changed his name later on. That was when he he, he, he started his music career, right? Had to get Something a, like had, that, yeah. had, had to get a bit of stage name. Mm. So yeah, the, the letter um, has been referenced by <laughs> Sorry, various, I'm just, various I'm, books. I'm having flashbacks to one of the only decent episodes of Friends, where Chandler persuades Joey to go with the stage name of Joseph Stalin. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. people would remember that name. They <laughs> would. <laughs> yes. There's already someone called Joseph Stalin. Oh, who would have figured? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so a bunch of people have have relied upon this letter as evidence to claim that that um, Stalin was in the early days a traitor to the cause, uh, but it first popped up in 1956 in an article for Life magazine called "The Sensational Secret Behind the Damnation of Stalin." Now, now 1956, a... Stalin's just died, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, fairly soon after. Um, so this was a Soviet defector by the name of Alexander Orlov. Um, so he claimed that, yeah, Stalin was, uh, was, was basically a traitor to the Bolshevik movement. Um, he claimed in this article that Stalin had purged a Marshal Tukhachevsky um, and other members in the Soviet ministry because they found out they had discovered documents that showed he had been a member of the Okhrana and had infiltrated the um, Bolshevik movement. Um, so, so this particular article was quite sort of damning of Stalin. But again... As with the case of Harold Wilson and as with the case of Ernest Hemingway, you do have to kind of ask, um, does the evidence actually support these claims? Well, I mean, especially and any claim in 1956 where people are separating themselves from Stalin's legacy, potentially in an effort to get themselves on side with the people who are now in control of the USSR. And there was a lot of efforts to distance themselves from Stalin's legacy, of which the great comic film, The Death of Stalin, goes into quite some detail, and for a comedic film, is very much on point for all the political shenanigans that went on just after Stalin's death. Was that Abando Ionichi? It was. Yes, I really should see that film. But as for the letter itself, apparently most most academics think that the letter is not genuine. Uh, there are some who do, I believe, but 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 the, the balance of opinion seems to be that no, this, this letter is not genuine, um, which means the only evidence that Stalin was an undercover agent... Um, uh, doesn't uh, goes away basically, but it does it does bring in an, an interesting idea um, of a, a sort of a, a sort of a counter information, a sort of disinformation, if you will. Um, now I know you'll be surprised to hear that the Russians uh, did sometimes like to sort of peddle in what you might might call a kind of disinformation. 
Um, or even disinformation. Well, I mean, if you want to be exotic about it, yes. Uh, but so, so apparently, people say this is probably what this 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 is the sort of thing they would like to do. They would the the Ochrana would claim that um, people who were genuine revolutionaries. Did you hear that noise? That was something very loud. It was actually quite impressive. Very loud and rumbling just went past my window. I have no idea what the hell that was. I don't live next to train tracks, but I'm starting to wonder. A transporter transporting from... Transporter? No. Transformer transforming from a Michael Bay film. Mm. Or a transporter transporting from the Asylum mock... Mockbusters, although I think they were called Transformers in the Asylum world. Transmorphers? Anyway. Yeah, Transmorphers. Um, mm, yes, yeah, so app- apparently th- th- this is a thing that the Okrana would do. They would say that this person who was a genuine revolutionary, they'd start spreading rumours that, oh, he secretly works for us, specifically to sow distrust and discord amongst the revolutionaries, so, which, which I'm assuming is the sort of thing that probably still goes on today. Well, actually, I mean, there's a nice example of, of this from circles. my beloved Romania. So after the revolution of 1989 that saw the dictator Ceausescu removed from power, the Securitate, the secret police, we've talked about this on a previous ep- episode. In theory, they were shut down. But the problem is the archives were not dealt with properly. The archives kind of just disappeared and in some cases went into private hands, being private hands, being former Securitate officers. And so what you got in the political system, and apparently this is still going on to some extent today, is that sometimes when people run for central or local government positions, a rumour will go round going, oh, uh, there's... There was something in the Securitate archives about this person being a collaborator during the communist regime. And the worry is that because the archives were never dealt with publicly, even if documents turned up that looked like they came from the Security archive, Securitate archives back in 1989, you have no idea about the chain of custody and whether someone slipped documentation in. So you can just make the threat of, oh, there's something about them in the archives, and often the threat does enough to derail a person's political career. Mm. Yeah, so a fairly a fairly common tactic, I guess, and that certainly seems to be uh, the case with the Ehrman letter. And that's kind of all I have to say about people who may or may not have been KGB spies. Um, something did occur to me, though, while I was looking up all this stuff. I think we do need to do a more a, a, another episode of conspiracy theories and pop culture, so we can talk about things like No Way Out, which there's your there's your, there's there's your KGB agents for you in pop culture fictional conspiracy theories. And we we did that episode. A long time ago. Long, I mean, it's probably long, long five years ago. ago. Yeah, at least. Yes, yes, I think yeah, we do a reprieve. Yeah, I think, I think, and we do love talking about our pop culture. Mm, and frankly, do. so much pop culture actually rests upon claims of conspiracy. I was discussing this with a colleague the other day. An awful lot of TV and film narratives, and this is also true for books as well, is the hero to be heroic, has to uncover some secret dastardly deed going on in the background. And what's interesting in fiction is that often 
conspiracies turn out to be warranted conspiracy theories. So narratives work on the notion of they uncover the truth. And so there's a kind of weird disconnect between the way that people talk about conspiracy theories in the real world and the way that we treat conspiracy theories in fiction. Mm, yes, interesting. I think definitely a topic that's worth revisiting. I was also thinking about it because uh, last weekend we took our kids to a, a showing in the movie theatres of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which of course kind of obliquely ties into the old streetcar conspiracy buying up the buying up the cable cars to shut them down thing. Only in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, obviously, it's evil Christopher Lloyd doing it, not real people. Anyway, save that for another time. Maybe next time. Maybe. We a, Maybe. We do a regular episode, although I believe we're due a Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre for next week. I think we are. Is that I correct? I think yes. we are. So, Let me... Oh, I need to go check the notes. Mm, well, it's sometime soon. I think, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state it right here and now. We should do that as an episode. We can, both, we can do what we did last time, just bring each bring a list... Of our favourite bits of favourite bits of conspiracy See, I, in popular culture. I thought you go. I'm gonna make it a personal guarantee. There's gonna be a lot of pop culture talk coming up in an episode very soon. Well, I think that goes without well, saying. Precisely. Mm, mm. <laughs> We're young so, and hip. Um, mm. So, so I. That, that's it, basically. That's all I have for you this week. Well, that was very interesting. Um, I, I mean, I kind of knew mm. about the. Harold Wilson stuff because British parliamentary politics is just very, very conspiratorial. I think I might have obliquely heard something about Ernest Hemingway and his left leaning tendencies. But Joseph Stalin being a potential mm. member of the Tsarist secret police is, is an intriguing little tale. Mm. Yes, uh, that, that one definitely caught my attention. I can't even remember how I heard about it now. So that's the end of this episode, but we, of course, have a bonus episode for our beloved patrons to go off and record. What are we going to be talking so about So our this beloved week? patrons are going to record the bonus episode this week. This is going to make it a lot easier on us. We record for them. Oh, oh, oh. So, so, we, so we still have to record the bonus episode then. I'm afraid, I'm afraid we do, yes. Well, I suppose if we're going to record a bonus episode, we're going to have some updates. We're going to have an update on our discussion about the Trojan horse affair, or the Trojan horse letter affair. We're also going to have an update about that derailed train that was QAnon adjacent back mm. in 2020. That was a weird one. I'm also going to talk about a weird story that appeared in the Listener and New Zealand Herald about a whistleblower, which has the weirdest admission at the beginning of the story that makes you go, so why are you reporting on this? And of course, we probably should talk to some extent about Alex Jones and his Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Yes, kind of can't let that one go by. So, if you would like to hear about any of those things, um, you can become a patron and, and you'll just use, it'll happen. I'm not sure how it happens, but it just does. You become a patron and you get all this bonus content. Um, and possibly a shout-out at the start of the episode, like this episode. If you want that and you're not currently a patron, just go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. But if you don't want to be a patron, well, then you do miss out on the bonus content. I, I can't I can't sugarcoat that, but um, you still get to listen to the regular episodes. And we thank you for it, uh, because you're our audience. And what, that's, that's just, what more do we need, apart from patrons, obviously. And luxury yachts. So, uh, yeah. 
not a big yacht person, to be honest. Oh, but you would be if you owned a luxury yacht. If you owned a super yacht, you would find yourself to be a very big yacht person. I mean, literally, you'd be a big yacht person because you'd own a big yacht. I would yacht. be a big yacht person. But also, I think well, you'd go, yeah, well, I've, true, I've got this but, big yacht. Yeah. I've got to kind of use this big yacht. And you'd probably sail around the Tasman Sea with your priceless Leonardo da Vinci just being exposed to sea air the entire time. I mean, just imagine mm. imagine your life on a big yacht, Josh. It would be like my life right now, only constantly moving. And I'm not sure that's a, that's a step up. Well, I mean, don't stop moving to that funky, funky beat. Mm. Well, or at least fact, don't start moving to that funky, funky beat. I'm getting my S Club 7 references completely wrong here. No, it is, it, yeah, it, but, it is don't stop moving to that funky, funky beat. Yes, it must be, because why would they not want you to start moving to the funky funky The S Club 7 were all about the funky funky beat. How many of them are left now? I recall seeing something about like S Club 3. Yeah, I think the last time they toured it was S Club 3, because I I think four of them have managed to get a career of some kind, either in music or as radio radio DJs, and the other three Mm. are touring with Bewitched. Some have got booted. No, I, I honestly, I remember reading it and thinking I've never read a more depressing series of words than S Club 3. I mean, that's just the story that tells you is, ah, oh, I can I can barely stand it. Anyway, oh, Josh, that'll do. No, there's no there's no party like an S Club party. Well, no, there isn't because there isn't an S Club. There's only S Club 3 now. They, they don't party. They just sit around and stare at the wall, I expect, wondering where it all went wrong. Anyway, okay, enough. Enough, I'm going to say. We'll we save up. Save up that pop culture energy, and we'll use it in a forthcoming episode. But it's not this episode, because this episode is over, which I will signify in the method of saying goodbye. Durango! You've been listening to Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentith. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com.